Let's do this. Welcome to the Teaching a Rockstar podcast. And on today's episode, we have my friend Trisha. Now, listen, I'm not sure. I, I have a story about how we met, and I'm gonna I'm gonna compare it with her story. And uh, I believe it has to do with a butterfly on a foot, but I could be wrong about this. But we're gonna uh, when she, when she joins the conversation, we're gonna get some details. And uh, Trisha, listen, I, uh, this is one of those stories I love um, about how she became a teacher and why she's in there and all she has going on with her kids at home or kids at school, Blackboard Brave. We have a lot to talk about. Here we go. Teaching a Rockstar podcast with Trisha Kaya. Here we go. Let's do this. This is the Teach Like a Rockstar podcast with Hal Bowman. All right, before we get this party started, here is a quick word from Boston Scally Company. I have found the absolute best caps on the internet at bostonscally.com. The Boston Scally Company is the online purveyor of caps with the most attitude. Some people refer to them as a flat cap or a Gatsby or an Ivy cap, but the cap everyone is really looking for is the traditional Boston Scally cap. Founded by the son of a lifelong educator, the Boston Scally Company designs and sells caps that capture the unique culture of the Boston people with an authentic style that is filled with blue-collar sarcasm, rugged integrity, and a truckload of attitude. Pick up the authentic Boston Scally cap at bostonscally.com. The Teach Like a Rockstar podcast with Hal Bowman. All right, so here's what I remember. Our first conversation, it was after a lunch break, somewhere in upstate New York. Albany, New York. And I'm coming back, and um, and you're sitting by your lonesome, and Mm -hmm. uh, you uh, are wearing sandals. And I look down, and there is a butterfly, a tattoo butterfly on your foot. And I say, hey, man, what's up with the tattoo butterfly on your foot? And that's how we met. Like, that's how we had our first conversation. Is that true? That is true. Oh, my God. That's Absolutely. Because this is like a decade ago. Yeah, 10 years for sure. All right. So, uh, and since I brought it up, tell me again, remind me about the tattoo and the butterfly and the whole bit. <clears throat> okay. So I was going through a really difficult time, um, just very depressed, marriage falling apart. And I came home and Oprah Winfrey was on. And uh, there was a woman on her show being interviewed. Her name was Lisa Nichols. And I was drawn to her. I mean, drawn to her. So much so that after listening to her, I Googled everything there was about her. And I became, like, obsessive about her. I ordered everything she had. Um, I listened to her all the time in my ear. And then um, I had called her because she was working with teens and she worked for a company called Motivating. Well, she owns the company, Motivating the Teen Spirit. So I called her and I said, listen, I got some teens who need you. And then maybe a few months uh, later, I noticed I start seeing monarch butterflies everywhere. Like they're following me and they're coming in eights and they're everywhere. They're like running into my... Um, you know, when I'm driving, they're bumping into the, the uh, windshield. They're everywhere. They're, they're visiting me when I'm reading on the porch. They even follow me when I'm walking. So one day I'm walking and I'm on the island in the middle of the St. Lawrence River. And this butterfly followed me for a full mile. And I said to this butterfly, I'm like, what do you want from me? I don't understand. What do you want? And so I said to my mom, I'm like, mom, these butterflies, they're everywhere. What do you think it means? And she said, why don't you just try listening? And I was like, whoa, try listening. All right. So anyway, I got a call from Lisa Nichols' company, and she said, hey, we're looking for some generals. Are you ready to be bold and brave? 
And I was like, um, I'm in the middle of a master's program. What are you talking about? I just want you to come to Camden and save some teens. Yeah. And she said, no, no, no. We want you to come to our program. So I had no idea how I was going to pay for it, who was going to watch my kids, how I was going to get there. But I said, yeah, yeah, I want to be a general. And I had never met her. I'd never seen her program before. I just saw her on Oprah. And then I went to uh, San Diego and flew across country by myself for the first time, met her, and everybody had to stand up and say, hey, this is why I'm here. And I honestly had no idea why I was there. No clue other than, oh, I'm going to be a general. So <laughs> I stand next to her and I take the mic and I look at her and she's wearing a butterfly ring. And then I look to my left and all of her um, all of her publishing, uh, published work had monarch butterflies on it. And I'd never noticed that before. So when I introduced myself, I said, I'm here on the wings of a butterfly. And then once I got my workshops for motivating the teen spirit off the ground, um, I treated myself to a butterfly tattoo. <laughs> Man. I, I got this. Here's the thing. Now there's a whole bunch of people with tattoos walking around feeling silly because they don't have a story. They just wanted a tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> like you earned that one. I only have two and each one's got a great story. I bet. <laughs> <laughs> hey, when, when, when you were doing the, when you first became a teacher, here's what I was wondering because I was reading in your bio and since we've known each other on, on the Facebooks for a while, I knew that you have, um, you, you have a bunch of, you got, you got a whole crew of kids over there and, um, and, and a few of them have autism. And I know that you're a special ed teacher and I was wondering, you know, what, w- w- were you a special ed teacher and then had kids or did you have kids with, with special needs and then, and special and then became a special ed teacher? No, I became a special education teacher first, and then I had my family. And of my four children, three of them are autistic. Two of them are going to need lifetime support. Um, my my one son is very independent and is able to you know work and do his his thing. But yeah, um, I came, became a special ed teacher mainly because I struggled in school. Mm. Um, I I was somebody who didn't like going to school. I hid under my hair all the time, um, and I really didn't want the teacher to call on me because I never knew the answer, and I just felt really stupid all the time in the classroom. And it wasn't until fourth grade where I had my first male teacher. And he saw right through me hiding under my hair and he would call on me every time. He'd pull me up to the front of the class, even though I was so shy, and he would make me present things. And I got really comfortable being in front of the classroom. And he even pushed me to audition for a special choir and I got in and I didn't even know I could sing. And from that point on, even though I never really liked the academics of school, I always found something about school to latch onto, whether it was drama club or chorus or something that made school fun. So yeah, you know, every, anytime I meet parents, they always want to know, like, what's the key? It's like the key is to get your kid involved in something. It doesn't matter if it's athletics or music or the chess club, what, just so they're connected some there, you know, with a sponsor, with an adult and a team and a family that they can have, you know, in that campus. And hey, man, what I was thinking about, like, I'm thinking back to like third and fourth grade. I, I remember sitting in that desk terrified because I remember the teacher would call people up and on the chalkboard, you had to get a piece of chalk and, and they would give you math problems. And you had to like, there'd be like three or four people at the board in front of everybody. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't see, so it'd be the same problem. You had to write the problem and you couldn't see the other people's work. You know, and you have your back. So you don't know what's going on behind you. You don't know who's all <laughs> snickering and laughing. It was, it was absolutely 
not it was just not humiliating, but just like it was a terrifying moment. It was. It really was. Especially if you were shy and then you really didn't believe you were that smart. I really didn't believe I was that smart. Yeah. So you know, I just I wanted to hide all the time. Was it that was it that year where things started to turn around for you and you you know, I'm I'm wondering, you know, later in your academic career going through high school, did you feel more successful at that point? No, not really. <laughs> I had an undiagnosed learning disability. Um, I didn't really find out that I was dyslexic until my second year of college. And once I found that out, um, learning just started to happen for me because I was paired with a special education teacher on my college campus. She and I met once a week. We went through all of my uh, what I needed to learn that week. And she gave me these wonderful study tips. And learning just started happening for me. So I went from being like a C student to being Dean's List, you know, all the way through college. And that's really when I became turned on to learning. Because when I was away at school, I originally wanted to be a sign language interpreter. And I did get a degree. And I worked as an interpreter for a while. But I was more passionate about teaching kids how to learn because it was such a mystery to me for, you know, 13 years of my education. And then those last, you know, four or five years of college, whoa, I mean, I was so excited about learning because, you know, she had all these tips and tricks. And um, suddenly I realized, you know, maybe I'm not a traditional learner, but there is a space in the classroom for me. Yeah, man, I get it. I'm I'm wondering if when you got to that point in college, your second year, and then you had this realization that there was some sort of there's some dyslexia happening. What like at that point was it a relief? It was a relief because I'm like, holy crap, I'm not stupid. Yeah, there it is. I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm dyslexic. Yeah. And so and then I became like just very passionate about. Um, working with students with learning differences. I mean, I, I belonged to a, a couple of um, uh, groups where we went to high schools and talked about our college experience and how we were being successful. And from that point on, I just knew I wanted to work with struggling learners because I understood what it was like to be them in the classroom. You know, I've talked about this a million times, but here is my theory. And it seems like on every podcast I have a new theory, but this is my latest theory, is um, <laughs> those educators were Things came super easy and supernatural to them. And they sat in the front row and they had, you know, the, the best school supplies. They had like the fancy trapper keeper and, oh. you know, were ready to go. And they knew the answer to everything and they participated. They're the teachers. And then they, they went to college and the same thing happened. This is easy. I'll just be a teacher. This is so much fun. And they get into the classroom and they got like two kids, an entire classroom that's like them. And they have a very difficult time relating to everybody, like the normal kid who really doesn't want to be there. Not to mention those kids that struggle or have challenges at home. Mm-hmm. And it's been my experience that those teachers, not isn't true 100% of the time, but lots of times those teachers who had a lot of challenges in school and, and some of them even like struggled significantly, those are the ones that have been just amazingly effective educators in the classroom. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> Because you can no, identify, like you totally no, connect with true. the kids. No, no, it, it is true because I, um, I find the more. The more I, I talk to other teachers who've really struggled in school, I think the more they appreciate what is happening within their own classroom. When a kid makes a connection, it's like a holy smokes moment. Let's celebrate this. Let's celebrate it big. Yeah. You know? <clears throat> 
Yeah, and I, I think also those teachers who have been successful their whole life, I think it, for, for many of them, it takes, a, it takes a while for them to recognize, like to see the look on a kid's face when that, you know, when that emotion hits of, I have no idea, and they're trying to hide it now, but you can see the emotion, I have no idea what's going on in here, I don't understand it, I'm trying not to identify myself as the one kid who doesn't get it. And the fear and the frustration and the and the humiliation the kid is trying to cover up, they don't recognize that when someone who has struggled and been in that same seat, they know what that looks like immediately and can connect with it, can identify with it, relate to it, and then and then teach in a different way for that kid. For sure. Yeah. Hey, tell me about this. Um, I know for you, there is something special about the way you set up your classroom. I'm always talking about classroom families and trying to get away from this place where we just have, you know, rules. You know, this is my classroom. I've got the big desk. You've got the small desk. That should tell you something. You know, that, 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 that whole thing. Because I said so. You know, I know, I know for you, you try to set up this, um, this, this classroom culture that is free of judgment. And, and tell me a little bit about that. Sure. I always start the first day off of school with telling kids, I don't like rules because rules are made to be broken. So in our classroom, we have three agreements and I explain what these agreements are. And our first agreement is no judgment, you know, no judgment of self, no judgment of each other, no judgment of me, of the material we're going to be studying. Um, and, you know, it, we talk about what that looks like. You know, it's not just um, making fun of somebody, it can be an eye roll or it can be, or it can be, you know, like something like this. We talk a lot about body language and how important that is in conveying a message and how would you feel? And then our second rule is no repercussions. Now this is a hard one for teachers because I always like to say what stays in my class, what happens in my classroom stays in my classroom within reason. Yeah. I mean, there are always moments when we have, you know, there's a moment where you need some help and support and the student needs support. And, you know, I, I, I'm clear about that, but for the most part, I want them to be free to make mistakes. I want them to be themselves. I want them to talk to me about what's going on in their lives, what their struggles are. And then the last one is show unconditional love. And that is a very strange rule for school because I always say we're not going to hold hands and sing kumbaya, although we could, but we're not, but it's just a matter of I respect who you are today because you decided to put yourself in that seat today. Yeah. I respect who you are because you came through that door, whether you are the bully or whether you're the class clown or whether, you know, you had a fight with your mom or whoever showed up that day, I'm just going to love on you. And, um, you know, and it, whatever that looks like that day. And I always tell them, you know, sometimes I just want you to give a hundred percent of yourself. And even if that's just 85% that day, because you're having a rough time, but those are our three agreements. And it really does create our safe space classroom in which we are able to have bold, brave conversations, um, in which we're able to, you know, really form nice family bonds because we are able to talk to each other without that fear of judgment. A lot of kids don't buy into it right away. It does take some time. It does take some practice. It does take some calling out and um, showing kids what that looks like and what that feels like. But, you know, we're in week six right now here in New York, and I'm telling you, it's a very different classroom than it was in week one. You know, I think people sometimes, I, I know when, when, you know, as a teacher, I feel this way when I, like, I get inspired by these kinds of conversations to hear what's going on in other people's classrooms. And I think, oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. I'm doing that tomorrow. 
and then it doesn't happen <laughs> tomorrow, you know? And, and I think that's so important. Like, yeah, and it, it ain't always pretty. It's nasty. It is not, it is not attractive on some days. It is hard work, but you know what? We take a step forward and then another step forward. And sometimes we take a step back, but the next thing we take a step or two forward. And it's that constant striving because, you know, when we have these classrooms that are based on a culture of becoming a family, one that's not based on rules, because you're right. You know, in fact, I would take it a step further. You said that rules are meant to be broken, and I would say I would take it one step further and say not only that, but rules are fun to break. Not only well, meant no, to be broken, I'm a total rule breaker. To get and away I tell with kids something? that all the time. <laughs> I tell kids that all the time. I yeah. mean, I'm a total rule breaker, so I get it. I get it. Yeah. But at the same time, we have to have some agreements about how we're going to treat each other. Um, that classroom based so on values to, yeah. is a whole different thing because you know what? Like, yeah, man, rules are fun to break, but to break a commonly held value among a group of people that love and respect each other. That is painful. And that's why over time it works. It doesn't work day one. Of course not. But over time, it absolutely works. And in my special education class that I do have, the thing is, is I need to establish this sooner, quicker, faster, because I have them for two years. I have them in 10th grade and then I'll have them again for 11th grade. And so it's important for me that we really do establish this. Otherwise it's going to be a miserable two years for all of us. Yeah. Do do you have um, uh, a routine that, that you start the class off with every day? Yep. Every day I, um, I greet kids at the classroom and I give them a firm handshake and I look them in the eye. Um, It kind of, clues me in as to what's going on with them that day, you know, whether they need to be called on, whether they need to be loved on, whether they're having a great day, they need to celebrate something. Um, we usually start off a uh, class with good news. It takes no, no more than a couple of minutes. No, let's share some good news. Yeah. And I try to make my good news as simple as possible. You know, I don't want to make it sound like it has to be crazy big every time it's good news. It could be just, you know what? I got a great night's sleep last night. That's some good news. Yeah. You know, my, my hair came out great today. Good news. So, you know what I mean? And I try to make it real simple for them so they can just appreciate all the little things that they do have. Um, you know, and then toward the end of the class, I send them off with um, an inspirational launch, whether I'm going to read them a quote or whether I show them a short little two minute YouTube video. I want them to be propelled out of my classroom with some sort of message um, that will maybe hold them for the day. Hey, have you, is this part, have you ever gone through the teen leadership training with the flipping and associates? Have you heard about that? I have. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So this is the whole thing. And and I think, um, you know, some people really underestimate the the power of this whole good news thing, and and here's why I like to explain it to to adults. And I, I'll do this a little bit with with my students, but not on a deep level. Where you know, in the in the, the society in which we live right now, with social media and just what's on the TV and Fox versus CNN and the back and forth, all the thing, like we are um, reprogramming our minds to easily find the negative stuff, and it's really really hard to find the good stuff. And so this neuroplasticity process that happens, we get rewired to easily find we can complain and find the negative stuff all day long but it's becoming more and more challenging to find those tiny positive things and that's so critical and even and when you start this kids will be stumped or they can't figure out anything good in their life i can't think of anything because they're not used to locating and finding and identifying and articulating the tiny tiny things they they think a good news is my mom won the lottery when right. in fact it's the, like had a little cup of frozen yogurt, like that's the good news, and that's amazing, and let's appreciate that. 
And so here's why I started it with with my class is um, I would um, I always have a collection of magazines. I I tell the kids to pick seven magazines, and it was seven different ones. And they would think what you think they're the most popular magazines, and they would pick Sports Illustrated, and there'd be People and Us and Time and whatever. And they would line them up. I said, all right, there's one periodical that's not in there, but they sell it at the grocery store that outsells any seven magazines combined. What is it? And they and they go through all the guesses and they figure out it's the National Enquirer outsells any seven magazines. And we talk about why, and then we get down to the reason of that's where all the negativity is, man. That's where you know the salacious stuff happens to prove to them that it's everywhere. And so what we do, and we, I do the same thing as you. We get we gather up in a circle. And uh, sometimes we have some music playing. We'll do a little dance. Might do, you know. And then we have, uh, and then we and we go around the circle. And people think, you know, it takes time, but really, man, you can get around the circle of twenty eight kids inside of two minutes, easy mm-hmm. with good things. And in my class, we do one clap after each kid, so we just kind of get the body warmed up and going, and we go around, and then we have a seat. And pe- and I think they're afraid of the investment, but what I always say is, when it comes to classroom leadership, you can invest a little bit up front or you can pay dearly for the rest of the class period. <laughs> it's up to you. Very true. I know, you know, the first couple of weeks of school, I spend so much time building our environment and our yeah. value system and playing games and getting to know them and having light moments with them um, that we don't really even deep dive into the curriculum until week three. And Honestly, right now I'm ahead of where I normally am because I put that work in up front because I'm not necessarily dealing with behavior issues, not necessarily dealing with the sidebar conversations because I give them a chance to speak. You know, they have a chance to share with the class. And so um, I think that is definitely worth the investment. Especially if you're going to do something completely different than other teachers, they have to learn how to do that. You know, because what they typically know how to do is walk in and be disruptive and work occasionally and not pay attention. Like if that's what's happening in lots of their classes, if you're going to be something very different, they have to learn how to do that. Listen, man, we have a school here in town. It's, it's one of my favorite schools I go to. And um, every year they start on a Wednesday. They start their school year on a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, the first three days of school. In their school, no backpacks allowed, no school supplies allowed, no nothing. All, the, all you're going to do is come to school for three days and learn how to go to school and learn how to go to class because they do it very different in that school. It's not, it's very necessary. I wish, I wish we could do this cross, you know, in our school anyway, I wish every classroom we were on the same page. We're not quite there yet. It's still, you know, this, it's still a new concept. Yeah. So we're, I'm hoping within the next five years, we can all be on the same page. Sure. You know, what's interesting about um, greeting kids at the door is when I go visit schools and I work with teachers and principals and leadership teams, I'll ask the principal and typically at a small, you know, table and we'll have some handpicked teachers there and some you know, administrators and I'll, and I'll ask them to write down a number. What percentage of teachers are greeting kids at the door? And you, and, you know, is it a hundred percent of every teacher? Is it half of them? Each and every day, greeting kids at the door, coming and going, a greeting, the handshake, the high five, the hug, the eye contact, whatever your form is. And what's interesting is when I ask the principal, they'll usually say, so, oh, we'll do uh, it's probably 75% of teachers. But when I ask teachers, they'll tell me it's about 10%. Because, of course, they're doing it because the principal's in the hallway. So they're going to do it when the principal's there. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I'm telling you, for those teachers who don't do it, it is it is the most 
powerful thing you can do to change the culture of your classroom. Like if there's one thing you have to do, I tell teachers, like a non-negotiable is greeting kids at the door with that eye contact, the morning greeting, the handshake, whatever it is. I mean, if it's good enough for Walmart shoppers, it's good enough for your kids. <laughs> and Harry Wong says do it too. And he knows something. He's written a book or two. I mean, if you need social proof, Harry says so. <laughs> right? But just to show you how powerful it is, I've had a student who has been in and out of my classroom for the past six weeks. I think he's spent maybe all of seven days with me because he's he's been continuously in ISS, out of school suspension, et cetera, et cetera. And he came back from this stint out of school and came into me and shook my hand before I had a chance to extend my hand. And he said, it's going to be different. It's going to be different. I promise. And I was like, okay, thank you for your commitment. I'm excited about meeting you. You know what I mean? So like, I just think, I don't know, something, something that went on <laughs> when he was out, but I was really like excited that he bought into what we had started, even though he hadn't been a part of it for very long. Yeah. You know, it's, um, <clears throat> that whole greeting kids at the door. I mean, I have so many stories, but the, the one that like speaks volumes is, you know, I've always taught some pretty hardcore kids. I've had some gangsters and, um, I remember I had, had, had one of my gangsters show up for class and he walks in, man, we, you know, we shake it up at the door. We greet each other. What's up, brother? The whole thing. And he comes in. We get in a circle. We go around the circle and, um, he shares our stuff. Everybody shares their thing. And I said, all right, man, let's everybody let's have a seat. Let's get this thing started. And he gets up and he goes, all right, man, I got to go. I said, what do you mean you got to go? I said, where do you think you're going? He goes, I'm leaving. Oh, you can't leave. You need to use the restroom. He goes, no, I'm leaving. I said, what do you mean you're leaving? He goes, I'm, I'm not here today. I've been, I'm skipping school all day. I just want to come and do good news. <laughs> And he said, and he says, you got to count me absent. Cause if you count me that I'm here, I'm going to get caught. So make sure you count me absent. So I don't get caught for skipping today. That way, like if that's, that's awesome. not powerful, like a gangster showing up, I'm talking like a 17 year old freshman showing up to do good news. I mean, that, t- that thing works, man. Yeah. It's powerful. Hey, tell me about your mindful Mondays. Mindful Mondays. Um, what we do on Mondays is I do just a five minute, um, mindfulness meditation. Um, I, I told kids real early on, I, you know, they go from class to class to class to class to class. They're taking in so much information, so much content, and it's all so different. And I said, you just need time in your day to just hoosa, just breathe and do nothing but focus on the breath and just let some of that go and recharge the neurons in your brain and get the, the air going again and really just focus on the breath and let some of that baggage go if you, if you're carrying some with you, but at least just clear your head for a moment. And I'm trying to give them just some practical tools that they can use if they're stressed, if they're worried, if they're anxious. And um, I have to say, it's one of those things that is a slow buy-in because uh, a lot of the guys are like, I'm not doing this. This is some hippy dippy shit, you know? And then there are, and then there's some girls who like literally get on the floor because I have a carpet in my room. They get on the floor and they're all in, you know, their little uh, guru mode, but, but it is a slow buy-in. But I think I, I always check in with them afterwards. I'm like, how many of you tried it today? What did you notice? What were the, you know, what was going on? And a lot of the kids, even a lot of my boys will say, 
yeah, it works. I just feel weird doing it in front of the class. And I'm like, yeah. well, you're, you're, you know, I, I just close your eyes and do it. Right. <laughs> but it's something that I had started, um, a year ago. Just, I was just like, they need a break. They just need a break. And, um, I, I felt like that was their little, just a little breath out as well as prepping them for learning. Yeah. You know, I, I had a group that we started this on Fridays and, um, and w- what we do at the end of class, we leave like 15 minutes for the end of every class every Friday or so. And, um, the way we start was, it was their idea. So we all laid on the floor. I had a carpet as well. We all laid on the floor. We turn out the lights. We turn on some mood music. And what I do is I blew up like 10 balloons and in silence, we would just lay there. And anytime the balloon came to you, tap it back up into the air, you know, just oh, quietly, cool. it was just, just gently tap it back up in the air and just keep them busy. And then, and then we would just breathe and tap the balloon whenever it came to you. And then eventually, you know, it was like four balloons and three balloons and just was eventually no balloons or just there, you know, quietly breathing and just laying. And then it was just, it was the same thing as you, man. It was just, a, you know, the, the, it was to, um, just to recharge. But here's the funny thing. At the time I had an administrator that was all about you. You teach bell to bell. You teach bell to bell. So what we had to do is, we would have a troublemaker. So a kid would volunteer to be the troublemaker. And what they would do, they'd go sit in the hallway and act like they were in trouble. That way, if anybody was coming, they would knock on the door and <laughs> let us know get back up and get the seat. And then I've had my principal who's joined us. He'd be walking by. He'd be like, what are you doing? I'm like, come on. In. Yeah, and you need a brother. Lay down. You know, yeah. if anybody <laughs> needs it, you need us. it. Lay down. <laughs> yeah. And then when, when, when you do your affirmations for your students, like what's your process for that? How do you do it? How do you do it to make sure like every kid gets one and, and, and do you use mailboxes? This is what I do. Um, I have popsicle sticks with all the kids' names on it, and I basically have them choose popsicle sticks for, and that determines who their affirmation goes to. We try to, I try to do it like three times a week usually. Um, but you know, they'll pick a popsicle stick, they'll write an affirmation down on an index card, and then they pop it into, um, we have an affirmation station. Uh-huh. And <laughs> all it is is it's a file, and they each have like a, a file folder with their name on it, and we just pop them in there. Yeah. So, and then on Fridays they get to open them and take them home. How crazy is like, um, I've always thought it was so funny when we first started, they didn't really want to do it, but man, they couldn't wait to read what they got. Mm-hmm. They do. And I have a couple of students who are like, we should do affirmations every day. I'm like, well, I'm not stopping you. You can go ahead and do it. I don't yeah. always put it on the agenda every day, but you know, Monday, Tuesday or Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we're, we're doing affirmations for each other. So yeah. that's how we're working. And I think what's important for um, teachers to realize this can happen in any class. Like the things we were talking about and people think, oh, well, this sounds like you're doing a teen leadership class or this is happening in your mentoring program or your student council. No, man, this uh-huh. happens in biology. This happens in language arts. This can happen in geography. This can happen in history. Like it really doesn't matter. This can happen anywhere, anytime with any teacher. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a social studies teacher. I mean, I'm a special education teacher, but I teach nothing but social studies all day. And so, um, it's happening in my social studies class and it's happening in my special education social studies class. It's a 15-1 class, which means for the most part, I have not only kids with 
learning challenges, but kids who also have a lot of behavioral issues as well. So it's working with them. And I, by no means am I teaching a leadership class, but um, it's working and they love hearing from me as well. I always make sure I pop in at least two affirmations per kid a week. So they hear from me as well. <clears throat> Yeah, it's important. And, um, it, you know, the, the, the way I've done it is we would decorate, um, uh, lunch bags, like little brown bags, and then we stick them on the bulletin board and every kid has their own little mailbox. And I like your idea better because those lunch bags get torn down within about three weeks. <laughs> Looking back, I should have consulted with you. <laughs> hey, tell me about this Blackboard Brave thing. First of all, I love the whole title. And when you came up with that and, and you were picking logos, I thought, man, that this might be one of the best I've ever seen. And um, just the butterfly and the logo. And by the way, you're probably the most photogenic teacher on the planet. And like the whole the whole look of the whole thing was just amazing. So when you came up with this idea, what, what kind of what was the impetus and what was the goal and what's the vision? Honestly, you were the inspiration for this because hey, 10 years ago, no, you were 10 on. years ago. Yes. No, I'm, I'm serious. Cause 10 years ago when I went to teach like a rock star, um, when I went to teach like a rock star, I kept looking, I mean, yes, I was interested in your material, but more than that, I was like, I could do that. I want to do that. This sounds cool. This is awesome. And so I was kept thinking, what could I do? You know, what is, what can I do? So Blackboard Brave, the title came to me in a Burger King drive through <laughs> <laughs> because I was always about having conversations with kids, a lot of times conversations that don't normally take care place in the classroom, but certainly belong in the classroom. And I always felt like I'm always standing at the blackboard and I'm being brave. You know, I'm having these bold, brave conversations with kids. How can I teach other teachers to do this? How can I teach parents to do this? How can I teach teens to do this? So honestly, when I launched it, my my goal was to work with schools, to work with teens and to work with teachers. But since doing it, parents are the ones who keep showing up to my workshops. Yep. And so a lot of what I do now has been very much geared toward teaching parents how to talk to their teens, how to parent 21st century teens, because the the way we grew up with, I don't know how you grew up, but I grew up with, um, you know, if I did something wrong, it was a lecture, it was in your face, it was, you know, let's make you feel worse about yourself than you already did when you sat down, let's punish you, let's drag you off to confession, get on your knees and say 10 Hail Marys. I mean, really, this was how I grew up. And I just, it doesn't work with teens. It never did, but it really doesn't work with 21st century teens. We have to teach them to be adults. And the only way to do that is to let them fall on their face and then give them the tools to show them how to pick themselves back up and move forward by making their own choices. And that's how they gain confidence. And that's how they're able to uh, grow into adults who can make decisions. You know, I've always said that kids will remember, you know, kids won't remember the consequence, but they'll remember a good conversation. And I'm mm -hmm. not saying that there shouldn't be consequences. You know, I think there's a place for that as well. But what's more important is the lesson. And, and I think oftentimes we forget, like, this is a teaching moment when a kid is struggling and there's errors in math. What do we do? We identify the problem. We figure out why it's happening and we teach. 
and when they're, they have a, a reading challenges, we identify the problem. We, and, and then we figure out why it's happening and we teach. And whether it's a behavior or a, a emotional or attitude problem, well, it's the same thing. We have to identify the problem, we figure out why it's happening, and then we teach. Because that's what they'll remember forever. And I think that's the whole goal of this thing is, is, you know, it's just being teachers for our kids, even if you're a parent. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, the, t- the school, the example I love to give, I think that is my, one of my favorites is my daughter, um, crashed our car twice within a six week period. I don't mean just had a little crash. I mean, she did some damage and rather than blow up at her because I was a single mom at the time, I mean, $5,000 worth of damage is a big deal, but rather than get upset and angry with her, I just said, I said, you need to figure out what you're doing wrong and you cannot drive the car again. And so we figure out what is going on. And she thought about it for a long time. And she said, you know what, mom, I think I need some more driving lessons about how to handle the car in the snow. And I think I need new glasses. And believe it or not, she did need new glasses and she did get her driving lessons and she hasn't had, you know, a car crash since. But Rather than get all angry and upset, you know, we just kind of figured it out. And yes, she had to pay for the damage and she had to get a job. And, you know, but at the same time, it wasn't worth it to me to humiliate her further. You know, what was the point of that? She needed to figure out. She needed to think through what went wrong. And I helped her do that. Yeah, oftentimes the consequence Mm -hmm. is built into the challenge. Like, you right. know, like, like we don't need to add on and there'll be more like she, she got in a car wreck. Like, I think that's enough. Yeah. Let's have some conversation, but I think she's been penalized just to come up with five grand and it's easy for a kid. The consequences are enough. They're already in there. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so for you, if, if, um, for your Blackboard Brave, um, moving forward, like what's the vision? Do you, is it more uh, work with parents? Cause I'm telling you right now, man, we need you. Honestly, hell, when I tell you that when I designed this, I did not want to touch parents. I didn't want to work with them. I don't do parents. Like that is, that's what I told my business coach going into this. I'm like, I don't do parents. But every event I've done, it's all parents. And it's all, they all want to talk teen and they all want to talk about parenting and communicating with teens. And so that's where I think I'm headed. I don't think I'm going to be working with teachers. (laughs) I think I'm going to be working with parents. I have nine more years till retirement. Uh, And then, um, although I do Blackboard Brave kind of in the background and part time now, Blackboard Brave is going to be my retirement. That's my second career yeah. after I retire from teaching. So, you know, what's interesting yeah. about the um, working with parents is, you know, we have this saying in my business we always talk about is, um, especially with teachers, is that you can't read the label from inside the bottle. And that is to say, when you're having challenges in your classroom, it's sometimes it's really hard to identify those because you're in the emotion. You're immersed in this thing. But a teacher standing at your door looking in and watching what's going on, the answers are pretty obvious. The solutions are clear and they're everywhere. They can read the label because they're outside the bottle. The same thing is true with parenting. When you're in the emotion in the living room and mom and dad and there's the kid and there, and, and there's, there's layers and layers and years of stories that have built up over, being immersed in it, the, the, the answers are so hard to find. The solutions are just buried in there. But what's interesting, someone with some expertise coming in from the outside looking in, oftentimes the, it's so obvious and oftentimes super simple to solve. 
Exactly. Um, in fact, a lot of parents are amazed when I say to them, I'm like, we're not going to get emotionally invested in this problem. And they're like, what? Is it because if you're emotional and they're emotional, no one's listening. Yeah. And so there is a time and a place and it's all in the how. It's all in the how you approach the kid. It's all in what, you know, how it's presented. Um, you know, no kid is going to jump up and down. Yeah, I'm getting consequences, right. but it's how it's presented, you know, how it's presented. And I think a lot of parents fail to recognize that because they get swept up in the emotionality and they're not able to really break it down and say, this is what we need to do. You know, I think there's no, there's no better training ground than teaching me, you know, cause you learn really quick. If you, if you start off the, at that level 10 with the, where are you supposed to be right now? Why are you with all like, that's never going to go well. No, but if you no. start out with, Hey, now what's going on? What do you, you yeah. Kids don't want to be backed into a corner. I don't want to be backed into a corner. No. You know, you've got to give them some breathing room. And I always say, I said, the worst time to have a conversation with your child is right after school. You know, how was your day? And you bombard them with question after question after question. They don't want to answer questions. It would be like you coming home from work and having, you know, Joan say, hey, dad, how did it go today? Did you teach some teachers? Right. Um, did you send that email? How did it go? Did you get the contract? Are you going to Houston tomorrow? What are you doing, dad? And you'd be like, oh, stop. No, I need some breathing room. Yeah. That's not the time and place. So it's all about the how. You know, one thing we've done in the classroom is, um, just like it, it works with parents too, is, um, when, when, like when you start with your good things in the, in the morning, like you model what that looks like. And mm-hmm. so, you know, with families, I think that's the same thing too. Rather at nighttime, after the kid chance to relax and process after I'm talking when the phones are put away, you know, right. rather than, you know, uh, saying, Hey man, how was it? You know, how to go to school today? You know, what, 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 is what it looks like. Oftentimes to model what that looks like first for the kid. Hey, let me tell you what mm-hmm. I did today. And then you model what that looks like. And then you ask the kid. Definitely. I always like at home, I like to use um, in 60 seconds or less, tell me the best thing and the worst thing that happened today. And yeah. then I, you know, I'll tell them that too. And sometimes at least you get more than a yes or no answer. You're going to get some dialogue that you can glom onto and then maybe ask a follow-up question with, but you're going to get some dialogue, not just me. Yeah. You know, I always try to get beyond the monos, the one syllable answers. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Yeah. That started with my boy when, uh, the, his very first day of school, I guess it was pre K, you know, I dropped him off. You walk him there. I remember they had a sit down against the walls outside and he, he, you, you put him in a spot and then they tell parents, okay, parents, when, on day one, you're going to come right back here. Your kids will be right here in the same spot. I said, all right, buddy, I'll see you when I get this afternoon. I come back this afternoon. There he's in the same spot. I said, Hey, man, how'd it go today? Okay. What'd you do? <laughs> Nothing. Are you telling me you sat here in the same spot all day? Yep. <laughs> so I knew right away we're not going to be able to have these kind of questions right after school. And here's the other thing. It's it's interesting is with my boy, I can certainly ask him uh, the, the best thing today. It was the best thing. And he's going to tell you, not only was the best thing today, it was the best thing was life. And then... <laughs> They'll tell you what the worst thing was, but with my daughter, you can't ask those. You can't do the absolutes with her. You have to say, "Hey, tell me one of the good things that happened today," because <laughs> like, like she can't identify the best. It just doesn't work in her head. <laughs> tell me one of the uh, things that you were disappointed about today, because you can't do the worst. Like it's too much of an absolute. I can't decide which is the worst. Then we have to go through that whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Hey, with your kids, um, when you signed up to be a parent. Hmm. I I have a feeling that you weren't thinking you're going to get three kids with autism. Not at all. And, 
And so that, so you had to learn some like world class parenting ninja skills quick, very quickly. Um, my son Caleb was my first. He's my second born, and he was my first child to be diagnosed with autism. But when he was six weeks old, I knew something wasn't right. He wasn't a cuddly baby. Um, he wasn't responding to sound. I assumed he was deaf because his father was deaf. And so we, you know, went through a lot of testing and we did audiological testing on him and he came out to be uh, deaf. And we, you know, did the whole, you know, hearing aids and teaching him sign language. And we, I was out, we were all jazzed to do that. And then one day he could miraculously hear. So what we didn't realize is that the, the brainwave scan that was detecting hearing loss was actually detecting um, a neurological damage. And uh. so it wasn't until he was two that he was formally diagnosed. Um, and then so with my son, um, he presented very different. And then my daughter also presented very differently as well. So three children with autism, but very differently present themselves. Um, but they've been, uh, it's been a wonderful lesson in unconditional love for sure. Uh, especially my son, Caleb, he is, oof. <laughs> he is, he's a heartbreaker, you know? I mean, he came to school with me. He, um, the last two years of high school, he was at it, at the same high school I was at. And he, we had come from a very affluent district and I brought them to Camden with me. I decided to move to the district I was teaching in. And it was the best decision I ever made because the small little town completely embraced him. I mean, he went to his prom. He was a part of graduation ceremony. He was the greeter in the hall every day. People looked forward to seeing him. He coached girls softball every day in doing their stretches. He helped our safety officer keep watch over the school. I mean, he just became such a happy, integral part of that district. And he never had that before. Yeah. And, um, he was, you know, everyone still asks about him, still misses him. You know, everyone in town, when he walks down the sidewalk, knows exactly who he is. So it's, it's amazing to see how embraced your child can be. So, yeah, when, yeah. when, um, when the kids were growing up and they were, you know, the behavior issues start and um, where did you go for help? Were you, were you reading books? Were you calling people looking on? I mean, um, you know, at the time we were in a district that at the time, because when Caleb was first diagnosed, it was like there was a whole slew of kids that year. It was like 1999 that were being diagnosed with autism. It just came very hard. I mean, I remember when I was in uh, college you know, becoming a special ed teacher, autism was one paragraph in yeah. a in a textbook. That's all it was. And they said, you will never come in contact with autism. It's so rare. Hello. Right. So now my, I mean, I have, I, 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 I have classes full of kids with autism. So um, yeah, where did I go for support? For the most part, I was relying on our district, um, you know, looking to them for support. I was looking to a lot of other parents, um, looking into what they were doing. Um, we have a wonderful organization here at United Cerebral Palsy called the Kelberman Center that deals specifically with children with autism, and they were a great resource to me. So that's what I did. But a lot of it was just trial and error. It really was just trial and error and just trying to figure out how you know, how, how, how to teach him basic things like, you know, potty training. I mean, yeah. that, you know, took, that was a five-year process. You know, it didn't come easy for him. Yeah. So, but in teaching him how to talk and say his first words and just point his finger, I mean, those were just remarkable, you know, um, moments that Milestone we celebrated. Milestone moments, yeah. Yeah. 
know, I'm just trying to put myself in your place. I can just remember, um, um, neither of my kids have autism and, and yet I remember so many nights, nights laying down in bed thinking, Oh my God, I'm a horrible parent. Like I suck. And, and, oh, oh, yeah. and for you, like how many times it says a single mom for, for much of their childhood, were you thinking to yourself, I mean, did, did you go through those moments where you felt like you were failing? Oh, for sure. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, you can be patient for so long and then you're going to have an explosion. You know, you just you can feel it. Yeah. And Caleb, Caleb, when he was two, he was so good. He 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 knew it was coming. He knew he could see it in my face and he would just do this. Oh, Trish. <laughs> he would just shake his head and do that. How can you explode? But he knew it was coming because I was just at the end of my rope. Yeah. But thankfully, I have my mom and my dad, and um, they were tremendous supports. And when I needed a break and when I needed to go for a walk or go to the gym or do whatever I needed to do, they were there. And I don't think I, I could have done it without them. You know, I think that's that's one thing you know we've gotten away from. Um, just I remember growing up, it seemed like you know I grew up in New Jersey, and um, in that in that little town, I just remember so many families that all lived there, where their um, you know the grandma and grandpa were were two streets over, and you mm-hmm. know and the aunt and uncle were over there, and and so many families participated together in raising kids. And I could just see so many of my students now. I mean, their families are just on their own. And then half of them have, uh, you know, it's a one parent family and there's maybe 10, 15%. There's a no parent family and there's step parents involved and it's just so complex. It really is. And I mean, I, I mean, I've been married three times. So I put my kids through the step parent thing too. Um, didn't last very long, but for the most part, we've been on our own with my parents always within a 10 minute, a 10 minute drive or at some point, one point in time, they were within walking distance. So, um, but I, I couldn't have done it by myself for sure. I needed that co-parent and that was what my mom, you know, she was my co-parent for a number of years. Really wasn't until the last two years that I was flying completely solo without mom. And let her just explore the world. And she's, you know, uh, on European vacations and traveling and enjoying my dad. And I'm so grateful for that. So, but I'm so thankful that they were there at the time too. (laughs) I can just (laughs) see you, you know, with a, there's a, you know, new uh, romantic person interest in your life. And okay, here's the deal. Here's what comes along with this package. (laughs) First of all, I'm a teacher. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Second of all, we got a basketball team here at the house, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and hey, was I'm wondering if you were to give because I know that you know what it is in the oftentimes um it used to be at the beginning of high school, then it was in junior high, and now what I'm seeing is the challenges the parents really faced happen right around 4th and 5th grade is where things are just starting to melt down or have the yelling and the screaming. If there was one tidbit of advice where parents is this a place where they can start? Well, what would that be? I think the starting point is it, it, it's immediate. I would say don't overschedule your kids. Make family a really important part of your daily life. So many kids are going in five and six different directions, and I get activities are important. But in, at fourth grade, they, they shouldn't come above family life. And I really think you have to foster that, especially young, so that you're having simple conversations with them, which are eventually are going to turn into harder conversations. But it has to start with basic dinnertime conversation 
I mean, honestly, I think today we kids are just way too overscheduled. They're bogged down with all kinds of technology. There's got to be a stopping point in their day when the phones are down and the iPads are down and they're off the computer and they're not on the Xbox and they're just having a face to face eyeball to eyeball conversation with people in their household. Yeah. My, um, my daughter is uh, looking at classes for next semester already, and she met with one professor, and um, it was some sort of authentic communication, and they have to give up the phone for two weeks. Ooh. And I said, what are you going to – you going to actually have to talk to people? Like, <laughs> look at them? Ugh. Gross. In the same room with these people? Hey, but it's I'm, true. I mean, how many times have you gone out to dinner and you're watching an entire family and their heads are down and they're all doing, you know, they're all on the I'm phone talking a three-year-old with the iPad. I see it all the time. Hey, listen, I've told this story a couple of times. I don't care. I'll say it again because I love it. Is I uh, spoke at a school and I was had some time before I catch an airplane and I stopped off at my favorite place, the Chili's. And I'm getting my um, uh, Caribbean chicken salad, and uh, and 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 I'm waiting for my salad to come. And then sure enough, there's one table open. It's that huge corner table, like the round corner table. And uh, here comes like six high school boys. And I'm thinking, oh no, please, oh no, please, please, no. And sure enough, they all sit down in that table right next to me. And I said, no. <laughs> and um, and they sit down and then kind of like the alpha of their little crew there goes, all right, boys, give it up, give it up. It's friend time. And he pulls out the, the purple velvet crown Royal bag out of his pocket, opens it up and they all put their cell phones in the bag and they tie it up and they wow. put it in the bread basket. Yeah. Wow. I know. I thought, Oh my, like my, I was just like my whole, I was just renewed with a, with a feeling good about humanity and our future. <laughs> All of a sudden, you know, that's so good. Yeah. Hey, there's a lot of parents that need some help. I was wondering, would you be open to um, um, people contacting you and like you could do like a Skype or those type of consultations with parents? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Probably the easiest place right now to find me is on Facebook yep. at Blackboard Brave or my personal page, Trisha Kaya. Um, I do have a website, blackboardbrave.com. However, it is down at the moment. It's going to be back up hopefully within the next two, three weeks. But at the moment, it is under repair and construction. Facebook is the best place for people like you. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's where parents Definitely. are. And and yep. all and they're all in those um, closed parent groups that and they're sharing and uh, looking for solutions. And I'm so glad that they have you. Yeah. Hey, listen, thank you so much for today. I really, really appreciate you. Thank you. It was so good to talk to you again. And I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to step up my background game because the way you put your whole wall and, and your sconce and your stained glass <laughs> and your top and the hair and the whole bit, man, I got to I got to get my world going. Because that looks like you, you're like Pinterest ready at all times. <laughs> what I'm hoping there's like 10 foot piles of laundry on either side of you that we can't see and dishes piled up to the ceiling. No? Darn it. Well, but today, it was a day off, Hal. I did a lot of housework. <laughs> Darn it. I was really hoping. Because, like, when we clean it up and then people come to the house, I'm like, don't open that closet door, please. Cause... Well, all right. I will tell you, don't go in our basement. Okay, there it is. There it is. <laughs> don't go in the basement. That's where it goes down. You know, people here. 
People in, in uh, Houston, they have no idea what that is. Oh, a basement? Yeah, we don't have those. It's it's this thing that you go downstairs. The dungeon. <laughs> right. We have, we have this thing called foundation. Yeah. It might be out of cobblestone because I live uh, in a Victorian house that's 130 years old. So. I don't think yeah. in Houston, I don't think we have anything 130 years old. And in Camden, that's all we have at our village, in our little village. It's beautiful, beautiful Victorian and Queen Anne style homes. So. Yeah, if it's called a village, that means you live in old houses. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not even called a city or a town. It's no. a village. No, very little. All right, man. Thank you so much. I think you're amazing. And I'm thank glad you. parents have you. And I'm so, so proud of all that you've going on and all that you've accomplished over the years with your parenting and just your personal growth and your Blackboard Brave and all the stuff you put together for kids. It's really, really important. And thank you so much. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been the Teach Like a Rockstar podcast with Hal Bowman. Subscribe, rate, and share from halbowman.com forward slash podcast.